Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Catherine Van Sickle, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. This week, we hear from our very first married couple. Our guests, Meg and Phil George, co-founders of the George Development Group, have built a full-service consulting firm together and talk with us about their process and approach. Their core competency is the implementation of major gift programs, and we have fun learning more about that and hearing their predictions for the next generation of philanthropy. Meg and Phil George are accomplished philanthropy professionals whose work advising nonprofits in various sectors has helped raise over $1 billion. Phil, Meg, and their team help focus organizations on a systematic, relationship-centered approach. George Development Group advises not only nonprofit organizations, but also corporations and families on strategic, intentional giving. The firm is national in scope with a concentration in the Northeast and Florida. Now let's get started. Hello to the George Development Group. Hello, thank you for having us. How are you? So I have Meg and Phil with me who started the George Development Group, which is their last name. So we're going to talk about some of the, a lot of the work they do with their consulting firm, and we won't have enough time to cover everything, but at least some of the interesting things that people will want to hear. But let's start with your origin story. How did the two of you meet and how did you decide to create your firm? Yeah, so we're married, which is always sort of a fascinating sticking point with people. Um, and we met in philanthropy. So to make it even more fascinating, it's a development love story. I actually think <laughs> you coined that term once during one of our conversations. Love life love. Yeah, there yes, you go. I love that. So we met working on a campaign for a business school. And I transitioned into um, being a major gift officer in healthcare. Phil transitioned into even more elevated roles in higher ed advancement. And all the while, a lot of people who had sat on the board of this business school campaign had gone to Phil particularly, but engaged in conversation with both of us about what worked really well and some of the best practices. And we realized very quickly that we were each helping one institution um, but that there was a need, a tremendous need throughout our region, and we figured probably a lot of other regions, and we could actually be impacting a lot of organizations at the same time if we did it right, rather than just each devoting all of our time to the organizations we were working with at that time. And so we took a leap of faith, and we started this, we launched this firm together and started with one client as firms do and it grew from there even to go further back when we met just as people working within philanthropy i would say that meg kind of stood out because she disagreed with most everything that i said and i'm not sure if it was out of principle or <laughs> um uh, or what but i certainly i i had to hone my skills around her uh, right from the very start but we ended up becoming tremendous friends before we knew there was anything even more and uh it was because you know she was the one who challenged me always the most on a day-to-day -day basis so that was 
He didn't yeah. make it sound fun, but it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it is when you're having discourse about something that you're both so passionate about, it feels good to engage and go back and forth. So I know you also have children and you're you know, working with a family as well. I want to start with Meg. How do you balance the personal and the professional? I think that it's such a hot topic question right now because, you know, the world feels so stressed at work and at home. I pull a lot of inspiration from the book Fair Play that Eve Rodsky wrote, and she's also a professional in philanthropy. But, you know, Phil and I, our partnership has to transcend work. I think it's, it's so important that our clients have the perspective from both of us and, and just benefit from what each of us has to offer, that that has had to work in our home life as well. And thankfully, the traditional model has tipped in the household, but even when the kids come to me first, we've made it to be such a habit and we put so much effort into making sure that we can be somewhat interchangeable, you know, as it relates to raising our family and also seeing clients. And there's things at home and at work that one of us is undoubtedly better at, but we're pretty honest with each other about, I think you would be the better person to do this. Like when our kids have to get shots, Phil goes and I go see the clients. <laughs> because you have to physically like hold them down, right? And they're going to cry. Right. Be very painful for everybody involved. So, like, she puts me into the car to go and do that. Like, all training day, I'm making asks, and Phil can do that. The short answer is that I try and make the partnership be in all aspects of life. I love the idea of you being interchangeable, and I think that's a really interesting concept. Knowing that, and knowing that you share responsibilities and are honest about who's better at what. Like if someone were to hire you or bring you on, how do you divide and conquer on with the clients and the work that needs to be done and the strategy that you build? I think we pride ourselves on being taking a very custom approach to all of our work. And so oftentimes a nonprofit organization or a school may call us and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. Can you send me something? And we say, no, let's find a time to have a Zoom call or we'll come to you and we're going to ask you a lot of questions. And we can really tell from their energy, the momentum that they have, the chemistry we have with them, and exactly where they are in the life of their development office, what we should propose. So every proposal that we make is basically from scratch. And we are really honest with each other about who should deliver some of the information so that it's best received, so that it's effective and we're efficient with everyone's time. And so there are certain things that Phil is always better at. And I think responding and reacting very quickly on a scene to a problem a client might have is one of them. But I pride myself in delivering information um, in a great way to someone who's really trying to learn major gifts and in-person philanthropy and solicitations for the first time. So we each sort of have our bucket of things we'll be the automatic person for, 
But when we get in the car, we say to each other, you know, I would be a better person than you to see that VP um, over these next few months until, you know, the head of school comes in understanding how that personality was too. Yeah. Do you agree? I do. I think it, it kind of the scope of our work, right? Our core competency is around, has always been around the implementation of major gift programs, the planning for and the execution of, you know, large major gift initiatives and campaigns. So we've worked on campaigns anywhere from five million up to over a billion dollars, right? Institutional players like uh, colleges, universities, healthcare systems, down to community-based uh, nonprofits, healthcare and, and, and arts and culture. But I think that you're always dealing with people, right? So there's a board, there's leadership within an organization. They're made up of different personalities, and you've got to try and feel out you know who has the connection and how they receive information the best effective consultants is not just about implementing best practices which is something that you know i feel like we can really teach people but it's about people believing in the in you and the method in which you know you're trying to lead them towards and so if you have a plan for somebody and the plan is not well received then it's really no plan at all. So it's just as much about how you connect with people, who's the right person to deliver information, as it is about the actual material that you're trying to impart on them. Well, and that makes me think about donor work. You know, other guests on the podcast have talked about who's the right person to make the ask. Yes. Yeah. We get that question all of the time. And actually, we because we work so much with people who are leading advancement or development or, you know, philanthropy offices, we try and ask them way more questions than they anticipate about the other partners they have on campus so that we have a really great understanding of the politics and the relationships and the perceptions as well. In fact, my favorite work is running feasibility studies, which can be called a campaign planning assessment or a whole host of other things that get to what an organization can do and how they can do it and what the timeline should be and where you start. And one of the things we do during that is take a very external approach to get all of those perceptions and perspectives and be able to advise even better. But the, it's not just about the funding. It's really about the fact that the people on the outside are tremendously successful and they run tremendous businesses. And so when you start to put pen to paper on like a plan, it better be checked against like, where is the market going? Those are the types of things that, you know, we try to, you know, really make our clients, you know, focus on earlier on in the process so that we don't just create a case for support for them and then start having interviews with potential key stakeholders who really don't have a say in what it is that they're actually going to end up funding. And what I'm hearing you say is nothing happens in a vacuum. No. That's exactly nothing. what you say. Nothing. <laughs> totally. Let's dig into major gift consulting, because I know that major gifts, individual giving, and principal giving really is your specialty, and that's the thing that makes your firm stand apart. 
So you've talked a little bit about the term high impact philanthropy. So can you define for us what that means and how it drives your vision? Sure. We work not just on the nonprofit side, but we also work with corporations and families. And that term, high impact philanthropy, is one that can be applied kind of across the aisle, regardless of the engagement that we have. And it's to say philanthropy should always be extremely meaningful. It should be deep-rooted, built on relationships, and generate outcomes. In other words, it always should have an impact. And so we start at the top. We, all, we always say we take a top-down approach or we focus on the top of the pyramid first because we treat philanthropists as the investors that they are. And we know that with investments, there's outcomes and there's impact. And when it comes to philanthropy, that needs to feel very genuine and meaningful for both parties. And with that top-down approach, do you get pushback from your clients who are really used to relying on either event-based fundraising or annual fund-based models? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. No, Meg considers herself Bill Gates when it comes to this. So what does what, what he say? I mean, I'll, I'll give you this answer and then we'll circle back uh, to be a little more granular. But the, in, in his documentary, Bill Gates says something really interesting. Someone asks him, do you feel like you could use technology to solve all problems? And he says, yes, I do. Technology is my hammer. So I tend to see every problem as a nail. And a light bulb went off in my head when he said that because major gifts is what we have. It's what we know. It's our hammer. And we tend to see every fundraising problem as a nail. And so sadly, we sometimes are called, you know, from organizations who have realized that their reliance on event-based fundraising or appeal-heavy fundraising has run its course. And it's hard if they haven't been building relationships along the way to get them to the place they need to be. But fortunately, a lot of people have kind of marinated in this philosophy and understood that the future of event-based fundraising is grim. It has been for a while. And they have transitioned and allowed us to partner with them on that evolution into this relationship-centric model, which to us is the only way to go forward. I mean, most people listening to this, right, will know uh, that over 95% of like what you're going to raise in the most successful campaigns comes from less than 5% of the constituency involved. So it's not to say that we don't appreciate uh, all other aspects of a development team because we absolutely do. They all kind of play in harmony with one, with one another. Uh, it's just a matter of saying that, you know, your events, you know, to, and to what extent that they are going to shift and even look differently are there to raise visibility and, and there for engagement as opposed to really generating, you know, net revenue for the, for the organization. You know, how about someone who's in their 40s and either just goes public or just inherits a lot of money and hasn't, if we follow your approach, you know, hasn't really gotten much contact from the development office and is sort of wondering where have you been, but suddenly they're a major gift prospect. How do you 
think about that. I mean, I think that's kind of the opposing viewpoint, right? Is that if you ignore people for a decade or two, why should they then invest in your organization? It is a great point. I think that there has to be support at an organization for exposure and awareness. And those are the two words that we use often when it comes to, you know, events and um, appeals, but there is a third piece and that's participation. So unless there is that two way street, even if it's a slow street, Sometimes it is challenging to get someone on the phone who says, hey, geez, I wish I wasn't hearing from you for the first time right now. And there is something to be said about leveraging free social media right now and the ability to communicate by email that when events come back online and when appeals feel like they could be more fruitful, will they? We, we sort of take, we make an argument that those two things will never be the same. And so if their purpose before this was to raise a lot of money, okay, hey, that's off the table. But if their purpose before this was to give some exposure and to make people aware and maybe participate, can we use the free tools that we have from our computer to actually accomplish those things and build a pipeline that way? So are you arguing that that idea doesn't necessarily need to be driven by a team of fundraisers, that that really could be more digital or with less people on the ground? Yes. It's not just about highlighting the student and showing that, you know, they got to go on this, you know, international excursion or immersion trip or that they got to be a part of this program, but it's also about making the connection between that program and opportunity and philanthropy. So that when you're capturing content and putting that out there on social media, you're going that next step, which says, here's the, you know, here's the people that we're serving and we're able to do this in part because people support us, right? So even if you haven't had an individual visit or they haven't come to an event with a prospect, when they see your social media and they can, and you're doing a good job connecting them between the impact you know, that, that philanthropy is having and actually educating them about the fact that philanthropy made something possible, you're in a much better position to begin a conversation with them on an individual basis because they've seen that there's a culture of philanthropy at that organization. So even when you reach out for the first time, they know that others came before them to make this possible. So tell us about your work with philanthropists, because it sounds like you do have multiple dimensions to the firm. My second question is, if you are working with philanthropists and clients, is that a conflict of interest? How does that work? We've never had a conflict of interest arise in that work. And I think that is because we've been able, most of our work has been in implementing major gift programs planning for and carrying out campaigns. The work with philanthropists is a much smaller piece of our work and it really came from people who were sitting on boards listening to the way that we articulated a vision that needed to be funded. So something as simple as, hey, let's share the strategic plan with the board. Let's not assume it's obvious how related that is to the development office and 
the need, the case for philanthropy. Let's help them shape a strategic plan that could evolve into a case for support and articulate how that plan can be funded so it's an actual plan. And people sitting on boards had asked us to engage with their family as they set up a family foundation and to help them create a mission statement and to help them understand what a good investment is. And so it's been a very natural extension of the work we already do because even for our own family, we choose two or three places a year to give to and we feel like we're investing. And you know, gift sizes are all relative, but for us, we don't spread our money a mile wide and an inch deep. We love to see the outcomes when we really focus our resources. And for philanthropists who are driven by outcomes or high impact, we do the same thing for them. And so that work feels good because we engage their children, we teach them what a healthy nonprofit looks like, we show them the questions that are good to ask, and hey, they know how much work we do with nonprofits, so sometimes they connect us into a mission they're really interested in, and we can even help to strengthen that nonprofit so that they're better stewards of our philanthropist's money. In the, uh, on the side of you know, helping families too, like really trying to be intentional about making that conversation generational, you know, as Meg was saying, right. is really important. We you know, may have, not necessarily in all of our families, but like I think we've had exposure to like the, the generation above us or even above that, right? Like, our, you know, the grand, like the grandparent generation right now, you know, they would give back and, and be a part of communities more times than not that generation kind of gave back in a more of a social way. So they spread their money out throughout community. They participated in events. They had causes that they cared about, but they tried to support a lot of people. And more and more, our generation really looks at philanthropy as a way to be emotionally invested in community, but really to solve problems. And I'm not saying that the generations above us didn't because some did that tremendously well. You look at the Rockefeller Foundation, you look at other like major foundations who have figured this out and set the course for others. Like they truly solved problems. They built systems, they built institutions. But if you get down to the, like, the family level, it's, mm -hmm. it's a fair statement to say that most people participated in causes. And so I think that there's a chance now to really bring our kids in much sooner and learn from them what is it that they care about? What do they know? How can we solve that problem with technology in the way that like the next generation is going to communicate with one another and be connected? When we don't involve our kids, you know, I, I think we're missing an opportunity to, to solve problems in the, in the best way. So based on what the two of you have seen, what are you thinking is going to be important for the next generation of philanthropy? We've just started a lot of research on that very question, and I'm hoping we'll, over the next year, we'll be able to present our findings in a really more formal way. But so far, we've learned being seen somewhere is not high on their priority list, which you know makes galas and golf tournaments and the like more challenging. And that 
they really care about how being involved made them feel. I see that Maya Angelou quote all the time. Like you may not remember what someone said to you, but you'll remember how it made you feel. And I think the next generation of philanthropists embody that because Mm -hmm. an organization that stewards them by demonstrating impact and outcomes and treating them like investors and treating them like they are not just important because they give, but because they add value to the vision, and to the thought processes, and that they have important ideas to consider. It makes them feel good. They stick around the entities who treat them that way. And we're only going to need to evolve to meet that more and more because there's no reason that that evolution won't continue. And as wealth is transferred right now, we're just going to see uh, people giving to fewer places, higher dollar amounts, we believe. Do you think that's because people are getting better advice and better education around giving? Or do you think that's truly the natural inclination of the younger set? I think there's two things that are happening. One, One is that there's a greater disparity of wealth. You can have all of your political views on that, but it's kind of a reality, right? I mean, I think that we can all recognize that that you have less people who have higher wealth capacity, and that's why you have less donors, but giving higher amounts. But the other thing is time, okay? One of the things that is the largest and most valuable commodity to everybody is time. When you think about the events, people a lot of times they just don't feel like they have the time in their schedule to go out and, you know, go to a different event each and every night as a way of supporting community. They'd rather you show up and tell them, here's what we're doing. Here's the need that we have. Here's the plan that we have to meet that need. And here's how much it's going to cost. And if you're connected with that, if you believe that need is important, will you help fund it? And and I think that the more that you can hone in on on what that is, the more people will free up time. Would it be fair to say it's taking more of a corporate or business-like approach to the work? It's fair to say that we do want to treat nonprofits like businesses rather than the traditional perception of this, you know, poor little nonprofit. So I think it is fair to say that We work primarily with VPs, executive directors, and major gift officers, and that we are constantly telling them you need to treat your organization like a business. You need to speak about it that way, and you need to build a business-like relationship with this philanthropist. But you almost evoked like a visceral response from us when you use that word corporate because of the corporations that we work with as it relates to philanthropy, it is sometimes a real obstacle to get them away from that mile wide inch deep approach to giving interesting and really consider that you know their values are well aligned with a mission and they invest in one or two organizations a year the positive impact that can have on their workforce their story their marketing how they feel, their, the impact that they have on the community. No, people wouldn't see their corporate name on a, you know, the eighth hole of a golf tournament. That's true. But people would know that if they pooled their money together and invested in one organization, 
the, the outcomes would be so obvious and so marketable that it would have like a tenfold impact. So Meg is smiling as she's saying this and I can just feel the passion as you talk about this. It's <laughs> yeah, and right. Yeah, I think when you ask that question, it's, it is. It's because people have a perception of like, oh, corporate, you know, kind of this corporate mentality of like just trying to get to the bottom line, you know? Right. Um, luckily, I think corporate culture is really evolving and has been evolving right and that's like an important piece any companies who really spend time like focusing on like their workforce culture focusing on like the values and the principles that their brand stands for are the ones that actually grow and be successful and they have sustainability well, we've talked about so many different things. We've gotten such a little teaser on what it would be like to work with you and just shadow you for a day. Of all the things we talked about, Meg and Phil, what do you know for sure? I know for sure, and Phil knows it too, that major gifts should be the hammer in every development office. And so if I can just underline or emphasize my Bill Gates quote that I stole and transformed, it would be that you have a successful future in honing in on your relationship building, face-to-face -face solicitation skills, and that you need to devote your resources and your energy to relying on that model of philanthropy to raise more money. I, 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 think, that's, I think that's right on. You know, I think because we're married, we do get connected in, in that way. So when Meg says something like that, I mean, it's free 100%. I speak for us both. Yeah, she speaks for us both. As a major gift officer, I couldn't agree more. I want to thank you both for sharing your thoughts with us. And we look forward to seeing more on the studies that you're doing with the next generation of philanthropy. And we look forward to being in touch. So thank, thank you so much. Thank you for having us. This was fun. Yeah, this is great. Thanks so much. My favorite quote from this episode was Meg's comment when she talks about giving. She says, philanthropy should always be extremely meaningful, deep-rooted, built on relationships, and generate outcomes. In other words, it should always have impact. This is something that I think we should always remember. We want giving to matter, and I think if we can continue to think through the lenses of the George Development Group, we can be better at our work. See you next week.